This is uh, Patient Care Theory 3, Unit 2, Part 1B, IV therapy. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, so let's um, go over IV cannulation. So that's a term for uh, putting an intravenous catheter into the vein, IV cannulation. Um, so with the um, administration set, there's uh, a spike <coughs> that goes into the IV bag. That's uh, the spike that gets inserted into the IV bag. What, do you know what kind of drip trimmer that is, macro or micro? micro. It's micro, yeah. So when you see a, s a small steel pipette, I guess they call it, uh, that's micro. So um, this IV bag has a bit of a different uh, cap in place, so you just take that off and you insert the uh, spike into the bag, being careful not to jam your fingers, because uh, typically you'll have your fingers around it like that. And then you hang it straight. Uh, before you do that, you shut off the roller clamp so the IV doesn't go through the tubing. And then you uh, squeeze the drip chamber to uh, fill uh, the drip chamber about halfway with uh, fluid. Uh, does it have to be halfway? No, it can be quarter filled, but uh, if, if you're, um, uh, dealing with a trauma patient and you're sending them by helicopter to a trauma center um, if there's too little fluid in the drip chamber what will happen is with altitude as air expands with altitude it'll uh, drive fluid out of the drip chamber and and uh, push air into the IV tubing and you don't want to give the patient an air embolus right? so halfway full and um, then most uh, IV tubings that we use now in the province have this little filter um, and it's intended to, uh, to stop air from entering the tubing but in order to um, uh, properly purge it what you got to do is so you shut the roller clamp off you spike the bag you fill the drip chamber then you turn this this um, um, filter upside down it should be 90 you know at a 90 degree angle it should be not on a 45 degree angle like it is here and then you allow the fluid, you turn on the roller clamp, allow the fluid to run through it so that it wets the entire filter. Once the filter is wet, it should stop air from getting into the tubing. And air typically gets in the tubing when you've got a 500 ml bag, you've given the entire 500 cc's, and you didn't notice that the IV bag is empty, and now air is getting into the line. That should stop air from advancing forward. And, um, and then you purge the rest of the tubing. And as the tubing goes through areas like this, like these IV junctions, you turn that upside down on a 90 degree angle. That's not a, not a 90 degree angle. And you uh, flick it with your finger to get the air out. You'll practice that in the lab, so it's not a biggie. Uh, so that's the check valve. I already talked about this. And uh, make sure the tubing, the, all the air is out of the tubing and the fluid goes right to the end. Um, so we apply a tourniquet, should be nice and snug. Um, you can use a BP cuff for that and inflate it up to about, you know, 100 mLs or 100 uh, millimeters mercury or other. Um, and then do you want to restrict venous flow but not restrict arterial flow? And uh, that causes the veins to become engorged. Then you want to, uh, sometimes you, if you tap the veins, it'll bring them up. So you just go like this and that'll bring them up. It'll give you a little inflammatory process. This isn't the room. <laughs> I guess they don't know it. They just look at the room and they see people and they don't know if it's their classmates or not first year. 
And uh, sometimes we use hot packs <coughs> to uh, distend the veins. And then we swab it, 30 seconds, and then we insert the IV. So the IV, uh, that's a bit of a steep angle. It's about a 45 degree angle. And sometimes, sometimes you need a bit of an angle, but as soon as you get it in the vein, you drop it right down, and then uh, down to about a 10 degree angle. Uh, and you want to get the needle just inside the vein and uh, look for flash. And once, once the needle is inside the vein and you've got flash, then we advance the catheter over the needle. So it's just the flexible catheter going into the vein. I always tell the patients too when I start an IV on them that uh, um, you know there's no needle in your vein, it's just a flexible catheter, the needle is out. So it might be a little tender, might sting a little bit, but uh, there's no needle in there. Because people don't know, right? They don't know what you've done to them. Um, all right, so uh, once, uh, once you've advanced the catheter into the vein, the very first thing I do is I undo the tourniquet, right? Um, and then um, connect the um, tubing, show the, put the sharps away, excuse me. So you want to keep a sharps container close by and then connect the tubing to the IV catheter using a lure lock like this and uh, screw it on and then put a clear type of tape. We call this Tegaderm. Tegaderm is just a brand name over top of the IV. So you can see that um, if it's gone interstitial, you'll see it get puffy when you start to administer fluids. And that's the first thing you look for when you start, start a line uh, is to make sure it's not gone interstitial. And then we uh, turn the roller clamp on, make sure that it's running and you're not getting any you know, edema in that area. And then we tape it. And uh, taping it like this is fine, uh, right? But make sure you don't tape over the thumb that you're coming under the hand a little bit. And up top, see where the IV port is there, the injection port is? Um, what I've done is I've taped it this way. So if this is, this is the port and this is the hand, uh, what I do is I put tape around it like this so that it's suspended slightly above the skin, it just makes it easier to grab it and put a needle into it and inject medication. And if it's right down at the skin, you're having to poke close to the skin. Just a little trick. Ah, sharps away. Uh, for pediatric access, uh, so preferred site is the largest, most accessible vein. That can be the arm, the leg, the hand, the foot. Um, the scalp is not part of your scope of practice, neither is the foot. ACPs will do that though. Um, and um, uh, access can be difficult, especially in shock states because uh, the veins collapse. And uh, sometimes it's necessary to go in blindly. And uh, what I mean by that is you can't see the vein, you can't palpate the vein, but you know there's a vein there. Uh, but I would try however way you can with both arms to find a vein, something that's, you know, sometimes you can feel it with your hands. If you, if you feel the veins on your own hand, you can feel they're kind of mushy. There's the kind of springy spongy. That's when you know there's vein. You can do that with kids. You can feel around the AC fossa and feel that they're spongy. Right? You can do this with your boyfriend or your girlfriend as well. Just not in public places. Oh honey, your vein. It's so spongy. It's juicy. It's, juicy. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Don't blame me for your breakup so.
so now starting a vein on a pediatric patient, on a toddler, especially a nonverbal, is a two-person job. Uh, and I say that because these kids will scream, they'll pull their arms away, and you need one person to hold the arm and one person to start the IV. And sometimes, you know, if you're starting IV on a hand on a two-year-old, you may not even need to put a tourniquet on. You just get your partner to squeeze this arm like this, and that'll distend the veins. And then you can release it right away once you get the IV catheter in place. But once you get the IV in place and the kid, don't let go of that arm. That arm will usually have to be splinted. You usually have to put like a cup or something, uh, like a plastic cup taped over top of the IV site so the kid can't get at it and pull at it. You have to watch the kid constantly. Sometimes I've even had to restrain the kid so they didn't pull out their own IV. Um, <clears throat> so it's tricky. Mobilize the arm. Be careful not to fluid overload. We use... Um, we sometimes use a Buretrol. Um, I'll show you what that looks like. I think I have a, a photo in here to restrict IV fluids. But uh, take a look at your directives for sort of guidelines around how much fluid you give for kids. So needle stick injuries. Um, have you talked about needle stick injuries in the lab? What to do if you get injured while you're in the field or in the hospital? No. Okay, so the, the bottom line is if you get injured, no matter what, but if it's a needle stick, uh, you've got to report it to your immediate supervisor. So that might be your clinical instructor, it might be someone in the lab. And um, if it's a needle stick, you'll likely have to go to the emergency department and go through a process. Um, when you're in the hospital, when you're in the field, you'll have to report it right away. And um, there is a step-by-step -step process they take you through. Um, for assessment and follow-up in the event of a needle stick injury. If it's just a needle with no blood on it, it's probably a non-issue. If it's a needle with uh, blood from a patient, then that might be a more serious issue and you might have to have the patient tested for infectious diseases uh, to make sure you know, you're not um, getting something from the patient. And um, there's incident reports to complete and all that. So just do your due diligence. If you get injured, just report it to your immediate supervisor. That could be your clinical instructor, it could be a nurse, whoever it is. And uh, when you're doing your write-ups with service, you want to read the policy and procedures manual. Boring as it is, you want to go through that on a every time you do a shift. Read a different policy, read three or four policies. Um, it'll help you tremendously when you go for your job interviews because they'll ask you questions about certain scenarios. And you can say something like, well, I know the service I wrote out with, their policy on this issue was blah, 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 blah. So I would do this, this, and this, and this, unless your policy is different. And when you can quote policy, uh, you're gonna get a job. <laughs> the interview panel will be blown away, so. Uh, so there are complications that can happen with IV initiation, IV therapy, and those uh, complications can be local, meaning at the site or they can be systemic, meaning throughout the entire cardiovascular system, right? So some local complications include uh, phlebitis, which is inflammation of the vein. You and I don't typically see phlebitis as a result of the IV we started, but uh, you know, a couple of days in the hospital, uh, if you use poor, didn't use a septic technique, they'll start to see red line going up along the vein in the hospital and they'll discontinue that IV and start another one somewhere else. They may have to administer antibiotics, but uh, so phlebitis is one. When you're in the hospital, if you get the opportunity to see phlebitis, uh, see it. So you heard me say this last year and I'll say it again. Make a list of things you want to see in the hospital and in the field. 
Okay, make it your goal. It's like a treasure hunt. Give yourself points if you want to. Even monetize it. But make it a goal. Like, I want to auscultate crackles. I want to auscultate wheezes. I want to see phlebitis. I want to see pitting edema. I want to see jugular venous distension. Make a list and check it off, right? Look for things. That'll push your curiosity. And uh, uh, you can even say to the nurse, I've never seen phlebitis. Is there anyone here that has phlebitis? Or if you end up spending an hour with an IV nurse and you're going around the floor, you just tell them, I've never seen phlebitis. Extravasation means that the fluid has, um, typically the, the, the IV has gone outside the vein and the fluid is entering the interstitial space. I call it extravasation, so outside of the, the vein. Uh, extravasation is more or less the same as fluid interstitium or interstitial. Uh, you can get a clot that, uh, that occludes the tip of the catheter. And that happens sometimes if, you know, if you shut down the IV for some reason and you forget to turn it back on, you can get a clot forming at the tip of the catheter. You don't want to dislodge that clot because that creates an embolus, right? You dislodge a clot, you end up with an embolus, which is not good for the patient, or the patient ends up with an embolus. Um, Dialysis patients may have an arterial venous shunt. So what they do is they surgically attach a vein to an artery and it creates this bulging vessel that, that you can, when you palpate it, you can feel the turbulent blood flow in it. And that's called a shunt. And they use that to access for hemodialysis. Um, you never start an IV on the same arm as a shunt. You never take a blood pressure on the same arm as a shunt. Okay. So you never start an IV on the same arm as a shunt. You never take a blood pressure on the same arm as a shunt. You never start an IV on the same arm as a shunt. It also, it's also written and you never take a blood pressure on the same <laughs> arm as a shunt. Yeah, it's written there. Systemic complications. So, poor aseptic technique, um, even reasonable aseptic technique when in, in an immunocompromised patient can result in septicemia, so infection in the blood, in the bloodstream. Uh, so that's an infection body-wide. Uh, another systemic complication or potential complication is embolus, uh, an air embolus, a catheter tip embolus, uh, a blood clot embolus, number of different emboli that can happen. Catheter tip embolus happens when you um, insert the IV needle, advance the catheter, realize the catheter maybe isn't in the vein, and then you do something you shouldn't supposed to do, you're not supposed to do, and that's advance the needle back into the catheter, and in so doing you can shear the tip off, and the tip becomes an embolus. So uh, when you're starting an IV, you're not supposed to, not supposed to feed the needle back into the catheter, okay? Not supposed to feed the needle back into the catheter because you can shear the tip and create a catheter tip embolus. Should you do it? No. No, 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 no. Until you're working. Okay. So you can get air embolus, solid. We used to give intravenous diazepam, now we give midazolam, but diazepam, if you mix diazepam with, uh, like if, if I inject a diazepam into an IV port up high on the arm here for a catheter that's in the vein, by the time it got down to the, the, the vein in the hand, 
it would form a clump, which would become an embolus. But we don't administer diazepam anymore. Catheter embolus we talked about. Okay, when not to start an IV? Uh, obviously, number one, when transport's a higher priority. You got a multi-system trauma patient or any potentially life-threatening trauma patient, time of injury, time of surgery is key. IV can be started in the back of the ambulance. It's not the ideal place to do it. Now, if you've got an extrication going on or you've got the patient extricated out of the vehicle and they're on a board and someone's securing them to a scoop or a board and you've got time to start an IV while they're securing them and it's not going to delay transport, fine. As long as it's not going to delay transport, that's the key. Otherwise, start in the back of the ambulance. Uh, we don't start an IV when we think the hospital is going to want an IV. Medics do this all the time. So the indications, according to your medical director, the indications for IV therapy is when there's actual or potential need, actual or potential need in the out-of-hospital setting, actual or potential need out in the out-of-hospital setting for fluids or drugs. Not for potential need for fluids or drugs in the hospital, but in the field. So if you think that patient's going to need an intravenous drug or intravenous fluid in the field, okay, do it. Here's what happens though in real life. You go to the hospital, patient might need an IV in the hospital in the next hour, two hours. The nurse says to you, did you guys start an IV? No. Oh. And then you go away thinking, oh, they wanted me to start an IV. I should start IVs on patients. Maybe I should start IVs on all patients because the nurse wants me to. That's a mistake. Because then you bring the same patient in and the nurse will say, did you start an IV? And you'll say, yes. And the nurse will say, that's too bad because we were going to put the patient in the waiting room and so you could free up and take off. But since you've got an IV, you're going to have to stay with the patient in the hallway. See you in six hours. That's the real world, right? We do not start an IV unless there's an actual or potential need for fluids or meds in the out-of-hospital setting. We don't start IVs for the convenience of the hospital staff. End of story, right? If a nurse says to me, why didn't you start an IV? My answer will be, patient didn't need it. Oh, well, probably need it in here. Well, that's why we brought the patient here. You know. <clears throat> that's not the cocky tone I use with the nurses, but, but that's the reality, right? Uh, you know, just say there was no there was no need for one in the field. So, uh, AV fistula. So avoid the same arm. If you start, this is how serious this is. If you start an IV in the same arm with a fistula, that patient may never be able to use that fistula again. So they may have to go through a whole surgical procedure on the other arm to be able to get hemodialysis. This is how serious it is, right? Now, patients will tell you if they're on hemodialysis. First of all, they tell you when they're on hemodialysis, find out if they have a shunt. Um, and um, if you go to start an IV and they say, don't start an IV in this arm, then don't start an IV in that arm. Well, you got a really good vein there. No. The patient tells you no to that arm, it's no to that arm, right? Um, Mastectomies, so uh, a woman who's had a mastectomy, uh, men have mastectomies, but it's much more uh, uncommon. But if, you, if a woman's had a mastectomy and she's had um, most or all of her lymph nodes removed um, in that arm, uh, because they're worried about cancer in the lymph nodes, um, the trouble is if you start an IV and it goes interstitial and there's fluid in the tissue, 
because there's no lymphatic system in there, there's nothing to absorb the fluid. So that arm becomes a demonis and it takes forever for that fluid to disappear. So you want to avoid starting IVs in the same arm as a mastectomy. If you got a beautiful vein there, and it's the only beautiful vein, and you're 100% that you can get it in, and you get it in and you're absolutely confident you got it in, probably not an issue, but hospital staff will tell you, avoid the arm when the mastectomy is. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> then you might not have a choice. Good point, right? So. But, you know, talk to, talk to the woman, you know. Um, just tell her what she knows, or ask her what she knows, what she's been told. You know, and just say, uh, have you ever had an intravenous on this line, in this arm, and which arm do you prefer, or do you prefer that I try the foot? So, uh, so fishes and shunts. I don't think I need to say anything more about that. Blah 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 blah. You can read that on your own. Any questions about that? No. Hey, okay. move along in a good clip here.